Kazam, Magic Kingdom, everybody. I'm not spongin' for rum. It be gold I'm after. How do you do? Pleased to meet you. Fine, how are you? Nice seeing you. How you come on? How to do? Pretty good show as you're born. Hold on to your seats, folks, because we're going to crank it up. W. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 583, and I'm here once again, not only to help you have the best possible vacation experience when you go to the Disney parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with the podcast, my live video broadcast and chats every Wednesday night on Facebook, special events, books, audio tours, and more. Whether it's your first time visiting or you've been to the parks hundreds of times, if you're planning your next vacation or love the history, details, secrets, and stories, there's something in the show for you. Because each week, I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between. And if you're a new listener, thank you. Welcome. Please go back and check out some or all the past episodes for interviews, top tens, reviews, and more. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and find everything else at www.radio.com. On April 22, 1998, Disney's Animal Kingdom opened its gates and instantly established itself as something very different and definitely not a zoo. More importantly, the park's opening represented a continuation of Walt Disney's dream for bringing unique animal experiences and an awareness of the importance of conservation and truly living with the land to guests from around the world. This week, we'll look back at the dream that became a reality thanks to Michael Eisner. We'll explore the early concepts, planning and development, and the massive collaborative effort it took to create a living, breathing, evolving, and magical park which truly embodies the spirit of edutainment. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have more information about our next WW Radio virtual meet of the month, another way that you can win a mystery Disney prize package, your voicemails, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Journey back with me to 1989, when Walt Disney World consisted of three theme parks, a brand new shopping and entertainment district, water parks, and so much more than what the vacation kingdom of the world was when it opened its gates in October 1971. But something was missing. It wasn't rides or shows or characters, but as guest surveys had reflected, it was Disney and animals. There was a long-time connection between the two that had gone back decades to Walt and his true-life adventures, or I guess even earlier if you want to include Mickey Mouse, but there was nothing in the Disney parks, and then everything changed when the decision was made 
to create a park that was distinctly not a zoo that came from Michael Eisner. And this week, as we approach the 22nd anniversary of a park that opened on the 22nd of April, 1998, we're going to look at the journey from blue sky concept to planning and development to reality and just what it took to create the latest, most unique Disney park in the world, Disney's Animal Kingdom. And joining me is a man who, like Disney's Animal Kingdom itself, is a little wild, very unique, and still like the animals inside. He's fluffy and he's lovable in his own special way. He's author, storyteller, magician, all-around nice guy, and my buddy, Jim Corcus. That, that's jungle Jim Corcus. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that really was my uh, official name uh, out in um, uh, Los Angeles because uh, to help support myself uh, through college, I worked at the Los Angeles Zoo as a tram driver and tour guide. And so I, I wore the, uh, uh, you know, the, the safari uh, uh, jacket and uh, I had the pith helmet and my name tag said Jungle Jim. <laughs> I think we need photographic evidence. Of that. I believe you, but I just need to see it. Oh, oh, oh my God. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I, I met celebrities and, and in fact, uh, I, I almost killed... Uh, uh, Mayor Bradley, who was the mayor of Los Angeles, accidentally. Of accidentally, course. right? To be clear, but, it was accidentally. But 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 that that's a that's a story for another time, or or unless your listeners go, wait a minute, have Corcus back, and we want to we want to hear about uh, some of that uh, stuff there. So yeah, so I I, I have that uh, pseudo animal background uh, uh, there to to help me uh, with this and. Uh, I'm I'm so happy you gave a a, a call, uh, uh, Lou, so so that we could uh, uh, talk about this and 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 again, you know, we we were talking off mic about you know uh, so many uh, heroes that are out there uh, uh, today. You know, the the doctors and and the nurses and the policemen and uh, all of that who who literally are are rushing in. Uh, you know, to the fire, you know, to, to protect uh, uh, the rest of us. But uh, I would also, uh, before we get started, like to give a shout out uh, to the uh, uh, Disney Animal Kingdom uh, uh, animal care team who, you know, uh, aren't, you know, hunkered down uh, uh, at, at home. They're, they're out there, they're taking care of the animals because the animals didn't get to go home. The animals still need to be fed and have their habitats cleaned and uh, they need to be observed and, you know, uh, taken care of. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, uh, well, just uh, uh, end of uh, March, there was the birth of a, a baby zebra and a baby porcupine. And, and even though animals have been doing that for a long time without human assistance, <laughs> it's, it's nice to know that, uh, uh, there were some uh, uh, vets there to to make sure that uh, it went well and that they were healthy and uh, you know there were no complications and, and all of that. So uh, uh, as we start to talk about uh, uh, Animal Kingdom, I'm I'm going to give a shout out to you know 
Dr. Mark uh, Penning, who's vice president of Disney's Animals, Science, and Environment, and uh, the rest of his team there, you know, uh, thank you for uh, uh, looking after all of those because there's what? There's like over a thousand animals or more there, so... No, I, I agree with you, and I appreciate you uh, you saying that. I think sometimes we forget or almost take for granted um, that somebody has to be there to, to care for them, and the horse is on Main Street and everybody else. So um, so I, I do. I, I, absolutely. You know, and, and especially uh, uh, it, it's probably a little more challenging with, with the horses there because they're doing all of that renovation to the uh, Tricircle D Ranch, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's a yeah, lot. Uh, so, there's a lot so, to happen behind you know, the you scenes. You don't, you don't always have, you know, the uh, usual facilities, you know, that that uh, uh, you want there. And uh, so maybe, uh, maybe when the parks uh, uh, open back up, we'll we'll see these animals wearing uh, bandanas over their faces. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the you know that well, uh, lo- lo- look at, looking like they belong in an old west. Uh, uh, <laughs> movie there for for that to happen. Whatever happens, I, I think that uh, uh, the Disney Park experience is going to be different in, in ways that we probably can't even imagine today. You know, once that uh, that uh, reopens, and uh, so I'm I'm glad we're going to spend some time today talking about uh, uh, Animal Kingdom and and also how you know it. It developed because it, as you already alluded to in your uh, uh, introduction, it was unlike any other Disney theme park that uh, had ever been been done, and and in in fact, you know, uh, because of that was was the subject of a lot of. Uh, uh, controversy and and challenges well and that's and that's really what i want to look at i mean i think the first question that we need to to think about and ask is why right so why did this idea for disney's animal kingdom come about in the first place right again so i said in the intro if we take it back to 1989 uh disney's sorry disney mgm studios uh had just debuted uh, Little Mermaid had just come out, which I think. Well, well and, and, and let's let's take it where you say Disney MGM Studios opened in 1989. What people don't realize is this was an unexpected, overwhelming success. It, it, it's like releasing Frozen and not realizing, <laughs> you know, this, this is the golden goose. Uh, Disney MGM Studios was going to be that um, half day park you know, where you would spend a half day there and then you'd maybe spend a half day at, at Typhoon Lagoon or at another park or whatever. That's not what people wanted. People wanted a full day or more I- experience. And so almost immediately there's that push to, we've, we've got to make this bigger. We've, we've got to I- expand. And, and Eisner saw that. And, and, and as you, you said, uh, Little Mermaid, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, Di- Disney was riding very high. And so uh, in 1990, Eisner was getting prepared to announce the Disney decade. Yeah. That 19, the 1990s was going to be the Disney decade. That there were there were going to be new attractions at the parks. There were going to be new parks. You know, um, uh, you know, uh, Euro Disney w- was uh, in in the final phase of 
uh, getting done. You know, they were talking about uh, doing parks out in uh, uh, California, you know, uh, uh, doing Westcott or uh, uh, Port Disney Sea, you know. And so, uh, you know, they had that uh, retreat, uh, executive retreat to talk about, you know, what are we going to be doing you know as part of the disney decade well because now, there, there was this overall vision too that that eisner had he didn't want walt disney world to just be you know a must do he wanted it to be the only do like we want to make sure everything that people are going to other places in florida we want to make it available here right so now they've got the movie studio park to match the dark place right. down uh, the street because universal had announced the plans to build their uh, uh, Universal Studios Park that was popular out in uh, uh, California to, to build that out in Central Florida. And then also in 1989, as, as you mentioned, Pleasure Island opened, and uh, that was to sort of undermine uh, Church Street Station, which had themed nightclubs and shopping uh, opportunities. You know, uh, Eisner was very sharp in terms of, you know, what can we do to keep... Um, you know, uh, money and people on on Disney property, and and again, that was one of the reasons uh, for an animal park because Eisner was a sharp guy. He he saw uh, that Bush Gardens Tampa was hugely uh, uh, successful. You know, it it, it opened, uh, you know, in uh, uh, 1959 as just sort of a a garden with birds wandering around and all that, you know, to promote the, the beer. Uh, so you would go there, and then it kept slowly expanding. And August uh, Bush, uh, Jr., uh, was an advocate for wildlife. And so he's the guy who, in uh, 1965, added in the 29-acre Serengeti Plains, which was so popular that it would later expand to, to 70 uh, acres and so Eisner was taking a look at this. That guests were going there because they loved encountering these exotic animals that were free roaming, you know, in this tropical habitat. And the fact that Bush Gardens was getting very famous uh, for its thrill rides, mm-hmm. you know, all, all those roller coasters. And in fact, uh, I, I think they're they're planning that a, a, a new one uh, uh, soon once uh, all of this. Uh, uh, stuff uh, uh, passes, and so uh, Eisner was like, "Okay, you know, what can we do that is better than that, but offer something uh, uh, similar, you know, to to uh, what is, what is going on?" And so, you know, uh, at the, at that executive uh, uh, retreat, it was Eisner who came up and said. Uh, what can we do with animals? You know, what can we, and as, as you mentioned, there's um, a long history in the uh, heritage, a legacy in the Disney company uh, with that. Walt loved animals, you know, growing up on the farm in Marceline, and at one point he wanted to build a, an entertainment venue in Marceline, Walt's boyhood farm, where, you know, people would come and interact with with, with, with animals, and uh, you mentioned the True Life Adventure documentaries, which were uh, award-winning, and and Walt was um, 
uh, hugely uh, supportive of uh, conservation. Mm-hmm. You know that, that uh, and uh, would do you know uh, public service announcements and uh, support groups uh, for that. So you know th- that was a part of Disney's DNA. And in fact, as as many of us know. Uh, Walt's original intention was to have live animals in, in the Jungle Cruise, but uh, he, he was talked out of that um, because, first off, because they are, you know, uh, real life animals, uh, uh, you're not going to get that uh, consistent experience as a guest. One one person may go out on the Jungle Cruise and and see the elephant and see the giraffe, but the very next boat out might miss them. You know, entirely, in addition to the fact of um, the amount of money that it, that it would take for the, the care and feeding of those animals. And they were running out of money, you know, building uh, uh, Disneyland. So Walt, you know, uh, was going to, you know, let, let's put a, a placeholder uh, on, on that. Let's, you know, we'll come back to that. Uh, but, but Walt, you know, uh, e- even when Jungle Cruise opened in, in 55, they had a little enclosure at, at the front of the line before you went on to, to board the boats uh, that had um, uh, baby alligators in it. And uh, Sully Sullivan, uh, who, who worked that, uh, said, you know, my gosh, sometimes uh, you, you don't think about this, but the alligators could sometimes crawl up the side of the the wire fence and get out and he said uh, thank heavens we had somebody working who was from florida and he could make the noise of a mother alligator <laughs> which would bring them back and they could do that so um so yeah in in disney's dna was all of that uh, you know animal stuff but but it it was eisner and his his seeing the popularity of uh uh, Bush Gardens, Tampa, that he thought, you know, what can we do with animals? Right. We already we already had a, uh, you know, our own version of an aquarium to match SeaWorld at, at the Living Seas, which opened up in, in 86. And this was really sort of for him the only kind of piece of the puzzle that was interesting. And, you know, look, I, I keep saying all the time that Michael Eisner is a person I would love to talk to because I think for a lot of people – the way he left may have left a bad taste or, or memories in, in, in people's minds. But this was very much, you know, like a lot of things, this was very much a pet project of his. So much so that, look, when when they were sort of starting to look at the initial concept, the economics did not necessarily make sense. But despite all that, you know, he wanted to take this project and move it forward and bring it to Imagineering, uh, especially in light of all the things that they had done in recent years, um, you know, and that's obviously where, where things get interesting. And we start to sort of hear for the first name, the name, the first time um, the name Joe Rody. Obviously, he had done things like Adventures Club or Pleasure Island and, and Downtown Disney. Yeah, and, well, and like, he, he actually started uh, doing uh, uh, the boats in the Mexico Pavilion uh, and, and Norway. Uh, actually, he designed uh, those, uh, those boats for the maelstrom. Um, and, uh, y- you're absolutely right. You know, I- Eisner, when Eisner first came on board, I-, I think a lot of people forget today how, um, 
innovative he was, how uh, uh, motivating uh, he was, you know, and how positive he was for uh, taking a, literally a mom and pop uh, company and turning it into a media empire. That that that's the, the that's the legacy of of Michael Eisner. I, I think he may have overstayed his welcome, <laughs> you know, and uh, became a little toxic towards the the end there. But but in the beginning, and obviously Animal Kingdom is part of that. And, um, yeah, in, in fact, it, it was uh, Eisner who came up with Animal Kingdom. He says, you know, we already have a magic kingdom. And it was Eisner who came up with the the, uh, the name Dino Land. He said, I want dinosaurs, and we're going to call it Dino Land so people know what it is, you know. And also, uh, people were coming to him and saying, well, you know, Mr. Eisner, uh, uh, you know, I, we we don't think that having this new park will generate more people coming, you know, we're, we're afraid that this will cannibalize from the existing parks. And, uh, it, it was Eisner who said, Nope, we're, we're going full speed ahead. And in fact, he was intimately involved with, um, uh, uh a lot of, a lot of the, uh, uh, meetings into the early planning and, and also, uh, getting Frank Wells on, on board because, because Wells was always, cautious and especially about anything that came you know uh to the disney brand but he he got uh, uh frank wells very excited ab- uh, about this so that uh, wells became a huge uh champion and he also uh, of- it was also important to him from the very beginning that there was this this great emphasis and put on conservation uh because yes. it wasn't just guests it wasn't just what guests would learn in the parks but he really wanted them much as Disney continues to do, they wanted guests to take what they learned and return home after visiting sort of to sort of continue that conservation cause. Right. And, and uh, e- even though that's uh, still a theme of Animal Kingdom today, when, when Animal Kingdom was being planned and when it first opened, it, it was almost like um, you were being beaten over the head with it, you know? Oh my gosh! They killed Big, Big Red on the Kilimanjaro <laughs> safaris, right? Uh, and and we're after poachers and 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 all of this. And and I think a, a lot of people had not been exposed uh, uh, to those uh, concepts or or, or that uh, uh, you know the necessity of that. And in fact, many of the uh, uh, mammals that uh, were first at Animal Kingdom were on the endangered species list. You know, and um, so so you've got that. And, and you mentioned uh, Joe Rohde. Joe Rohde was, yeah, an, an up-and-coming uh, Imagineer. And he was, Rohde was always interested in history. He was interested in in animals and, and uh, all of that. And, and so he was literally given uh, uh, $250,000 which uh, uh, I heard Joe joke about one time and said, yeah, at, at Disney, that's about enough to buy you breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, given 12 weeks, and he put together a team of about uh, seven to eight Imagineers to see, you know, wh- what can we come up with? Because, uh, you know, they had sent out Disney. Disney is great at, at doing uh, uh, research and they had uh, uh, sent out, you know, 
a, a, a research team, an investigative team, who came back and they said, look, there, there's a zoo in every city, in every town in, in the country, and they're subsidized by the, by the city or by the state or by the federal government. And uh, they, people pay maybe a fourth uh, of what they pay at Disney to come in to the parks and they stay for, you know, maybe two hours. Maybe they buy a, uh, a soda or something, and uh, then, they, then they go. And, and so, you know, uh, why would Disney, you know, ever want to get into, uh, uh, you know, th- that, ty- that type of business? You know, it, 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 it's something that already exists out there. It exists less expensively. You know, uh, it, it, people already have an attitude towards that. And to, to Eisner's credit, when all of this business analysis, you know, came back and uh, uh, he goes, hey, I, I can see all of you guys hate this. So this has got to be a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And he he moved on this idea, you know, pretty quickly. You know, he announced this what he was calling at the time Wild Animal Kingdom. um you know, in the late, um, you know, in the 80s, um, you know, pretty quickly, even as he was starting to assemble the team. And, and you mentioned Joe Rody and the team. And I think I, I almost want to pause for a second and mention some of the other people, because I think everybody sort of knows the name Joe Rody. Um, mm-hmm. But you talked about him sort of assembling this small theme, small team. And I think it's really interesting. The people, the, the six or seven people that he brought together in the little trailer that they gave him, you know, in this little uh, outside. I mean, literally, they put him in a trailer outside of Imagineering and was like, go put this together. Um, and he's got a, a couple of people. He had a, a his roommate from Occidental College was Kevin Brown, who mm-hmm. had sort of learned his skills at the California Renaissance Fair. Um, he was right. a director. And, and, and he, he was, he, Kevin was also a very strong writer. Yeah. Yeah, he was a director and performer there. I'm going to butcher her name so forgive me Zofia Kostryko who was a concept design Kostryko thank thank heavens you tried to pronounce that name because I can't but her background was in film and TV and the fine arts Tony Miranda was a set designer who did a lot of stuff on Broadway he also brought in Christopher West who was an an interior designer who worked as the architect and Patsy Tillich was a uh, worked at Six Flags uh, as a theme park operations manager, uh, who also was an executive se- secretary in the corporate offices. So I think he wanted to bring together a, a very interesting, diverse group of people to help sort of come up with those initial um, initial concepts the, the, of what Animal Kingdom was going concept, to be. The initial proposal, and 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 yes, they they didn't have a lot of money. You know, when we think about Imagineering, we think about these beautiful full color concept paintings and the elaborate models and all that. Basically, what they had is they had three by five index cards <laughs> and uh, some artist sketch pads, and and that first proposal was that the park was going to be a. Uh, uh, a three-part experience. There would be the uh, uh, traditional theme park uh, uh, attractions, because again, that's something that's expected at Disney. There would be a zoo-like uh, component, and then there would be this large, almost Epcot-style pavilion mm-hmm. that would provide information and and education about animals. So that that was the first 
concept for, you know, Disney's Animal Kingdom. Now, fortunately, uh, Rhodey is a, a sharp guy, and he realized, okay, I've got this this group. None of us <laughs> know what it takes to, to, you know, obtain animals or care for animals or how to exhibit animals or what's involved with managing, you know, that whole experience. Uh, so it was Rhodey who brought in um, Dr. Bill Conway, who was the uh, executive director of the Bronx Zoo. And so uh, this was a really eye-opening uh, uh, education, you know, where, where he introduced them to things like uh, the AZA, you know, which they were unaware of, you know, and 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 that's the biggest organization that that takes care of you know zoos and aquariums and uh, you know responsible animal care and uh, all of that. And and remember, the Imagineers they're they're working in uh, uh, Southern California here, so Conway has to keep flying out, you know, for meetings out to um, uh, California you know, to, to say, well, you should be thinking about this, you know, and so how many hippos could you really allow, you know, uh, in a pool, you know, uh, uh, and uh, all of these other things. And finally, he, he figures, look, this is taking more time than I c can really give you because I've got my job, you know, uh, in in uh, in New York there, you know, and and uh, I, I put some of that stuff on hold just to get you guys, you know, up and running. Uh, so he he recommended that they contacted um, uh, Rick uh, Barangi, who was uh, uh, at the uh, San Diego Zoo, and he had just recently he was he was so good he had just been recently. Uh, promoted to curator of all the mammals there, and he was a, a trained zoologist. And he had also spent time um, uh, in New Jersey with the Warner Brothers Jungle Habitat and with the Lion King uh, Safari in Southern California. And uh, uh, some listeners, uh, especially Southern California listeners, may remember that Lion King Safari was basically you're in your car with the windows rolled up <laughs> as you drive through this path. Where... I used to go to Jungle Habitat in New Jersey. So I, I remember. You? Yeah, of course. Yep. And, and, and you know, it, I, I, you know I, I remember going with my dad one time and, and, uh, and, and my mom and, and, and my two brothers and a, a lion jumping, you know, on, on the, the hood of the car. And Dad said, "This is the last time we're going. <laughs> Take a good look." Um, and and so they thought, "Okay, well, he he would be a good uh, consultant because you know they were thinking about uh, you know developing a, uh, a a safari trek, you know." And so he's obviously had experiences on this. So so what was your experience on the jungle habitat? Do you remember much about that? I do. I remember going with my parents and driving through, and I don't remember why, and I'm sure I still have this in, in storage somewhere. I remember um, there was a, a drive-through part, and then there was also these little interactive exhibits, and you had this mm -hmm. little red key that was in the shape of an elephant and the, the trunk, the elongated trunk was sort of the key and you'd put it into these different interactive kiosks and turn it and it would talk to you, right? It was sort of like the huh. earliest world key information system, but it was at, um, it was, and I remember just sort of driving through 
with my I, I, had a, I have a six year younger brother. Uh, but again, you're right. The windows are down and there's monkeys and giraffes or whatever sort of zebras sticking their head in your car. Uh, I don't even know yep. if, if things like that even exist anymore. Well, I, I, boy, I, I, I could see legally people <laughs> people being a little concerned. Uh, it would be great uh, for Instagram, that. but I don't know, right, legally if uh, if they would allow it. Yeah. So anyway, he, he has the, this uh, uh, background and he comes in and he's. You know he's really personable, uh, he, but he's also uh, very—I uh, guess I would say—flexible. You know, sometimes you have people in um, uh, who are animal experts or whatever who are very uh, maybe brusque, and it's like you know my way or the highway type thing. This is the only way uh, to do this. He—he he was very open to you know. Okay, what are your ideas? What can we do to make that happen and still be, you know, um, uh, taken to con- the concerns of the animals and the safety and the well-being uh, uh, of those? And and so he he was a, co- a consultant, and uh, uh, he was the one who suggested uh, creating an advisory board. So D- Disney brought in you know zoologists and. Uh, curators and veterinarians and all this from around the United States, including Dr. Conway, who had time to work on an advisory board. And uh, that advisory board is the one that helped launch uh, the Disney Wildlife Conservation Fund, you know, in 1995 there. And also it was a really wise move because the advisory board uh, would become uh, Disney's best defense, you know, Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with uh, PETA or or animal advocacy advocacy uh, uh, groups who express concerns and all that, here you have all of these people who have already demonstrated in their career, you know, uh, their concern for the uh, health and safety uh, of animals, and uh, their input, you know, really influenced uh, the design. Uh, of the park, you know, so so now it's expanding from that uh, three concept thing into this. Okay, let's create this free roaming habitat here. You know, uh, you don't want to have uh, uh, and all, you know, driving through the park, you know, with the food for the animals and things like this. So, what can we design, you know, backstage uh, uh, for all of this? And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, brought uh, Barangi on uh, full-time at Disney was, um, uh, and he came on in 1993, 1993, and that was right after uh, Michael and Jane Eisner visited the San Diego Zoo, and he gave them a personal tour. Mm-hmm. And, and he said that he was so impressed with Eisner's passion about this project and passion about you know, showcasing the animal. So it, it had gone beyond just, you know, uh, we're going to kill Bush Gardens. It had become, you know, something of its own now, you know. Well, the interesting and thing, had, to, but the thing that, that, that I found interesting about sort of the, the, the genesis of the project was as much as this was an Eisner passion project and something he was very heavily vested in, it was not a slam dunk from the very beginning, right? So, you know, Joe no, Rody, no, when, no. He, when he sort of is, is first 
tasked with this. Again, he goes back to you know ideals that Walt shared. Right, he wanted it to be a, a very edutainment based. Right, Walt always said about how some of the most mm-hmm. fascinating people he ever met were were animals. But this wasn't a slam dunk. Like Roney had to pitch this not one, not two, but three times because the first time he went in to Eisner and Wells, he had all these little view graphs and his his cards and and showed you know what the parking and the concessions and the theaters would be like, and they gave him like a resounding no. Like they right. told him Disney does not do zoos. Like go back, try it again, regroup. Comes back, he's got all kinds of charts and data, right? Because he assembled this team of people to really give the the empirical data about having these animals here, about how this would actually be the right fit for Disney. And it actually caused almost more debate than it did the first time because Eisner was like, look, these animals that you want to bring in here, they don't capture the Disney magic that we have in other places. So, so, so a, as you know, for his final presentation, he brought in a very special visual aid <laughs> that convinced Eisner, right? <laughs> Joe Rody is the original Tiger King. I don't care what Netflix has to say. <laughs> so look, he's got this like almost, you know, this last time, this last opportunity to pitch it. And yes, he's got his drawings of what the tree of life is going to be and have this sort of Walt-like weenie there and the foliage and all this but this time they're all in there waiting for joe to come in and as the the story goes when the door opens joe walks in with his 800 pound siberian tiger and which is how heavy i'm going to be after all this (laughs) quarantine and eating all this junk food here (laughs) and they seat him you know the animal handler brings the tiger in and seats him down you know right next to Michael Eisner, um, you know, and in sort of in between he and Frank Wells. And there was like there's this silence, you know, and then Rhodey looks and it's like, all right, you know, any questions? Because clearly it was so very impactful. And Joe talked about this. You know, it's been written about so many times, but he talked years ago at, um, at, at, at sort of a Disney fan convention. And like you said, Jim, you know, Joe Rhodey was not necessarily like the animal guy, you know, and he admitted no, like, no. no, we, none of the, none of us knew really a lot about, you know, animals like, but can we bring this, you know, can we bring a live animal? Like, what do we bring in? Do we bring in like a lizard? Do we bring in, you know, a chimpanzee? Do we bring in, you know, some sort of tiny little thing that we can bring in? Like, you know, like they used to do on the tonight show or, do we bring in something that's larger, right? Is it an elephant? Mm-hmm. Do we bring in a baby elephant? No, there's not. It's not as you know impactful. It's got to be. It can't be something super dangerous like a leopard. But maybe we can bring in like a tiger. You know, have somebody to brought in it because I think they tried it with a leopard and it was a little bit too you know jumpy and and would not necessarily sort right. of sit and yes. rest like like the tiger would because the tiger was a little bit um, a little bit more mellow um than the especially was. if you feed the tiger ahead of time <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> right hopefully it won't just nap the entire time because then he'll be concerned that the animals would be napping well, all day. Yeah. Right. you know if you feed me ahead of a presentation then I, <laughs> yes, I, i'm ready right. to go to sleep yeah so and he look he's like look this is absolutely a calculated risk like this can either work well it can fail it might try and jump michael eisner but and he's like look there's no way you'd be able to get away with doing this today 
You know, he said Marty right. Sklar actually called him into the office. He's like, you know, you really shouldn't have thought, you know, you really should have talked to somebody before you decided to bring <laughs> a tiger into the CEO's office. Um, mm-hmm. But it worked. You know, it worked. Sometimes you that type of a visual impact is more is greater than anything that he could have put on a piece of paper or, or an oral presentation. Well, well again, it, it, uh, you know, if you've ever been to a, even to a zoo and, and seen a tiger or seen a tiger, you know, a little up, up close, these are magnificent animals. And, and there's uh, just uh, an intimidation you know they're so powerful and 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 all that and and you can just feel that you know uh uh in your in your bones and and in fact when a tiger growls uh it um uh, gr- uh there there's a sound level that is actually below what um the human ear can hear so it goes through your body so, so that that's one of the reasons why your body tenses up when an, uh, when a tiger growls is your body is sensing something uh, out of the ordinary there. So, so yes, in terms of a visual aid, this is you know pretty impressive. And and so even when Eisner is saying yes, we're going to go ahead because earth moving equipment was was set up on on the property in August of 1994. You know because there was going to be this announcement in 1994 but that did not happen because 1994 we talk about things being a very good year that was a very bad year you know that that's the death of frank wells who was a a champion of the project you have eisner's heart attack you have the resignation of jeffrey katzenberg who left uh to form his own company uh you had the financial challenges of the newly opened uh, Euro Disney theme park in France, which, you know, Eisner felt was going to be a cash cow, you know, paying for all of these things for the Disney decade. And there was the collapse of Disney's America theme park in Virginia. So uh, Animal Kingdom dropped pretty low on the priority list there, you know, uh, of uh, we're going to announce this happening. Uh, and and so again, you know, it, it 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 was always on the verge of of being uh, uh, canceled and 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 never being built. And uh, interestingly enough, the person who never uh, lost hope through any of these things was Rody. Rody mm-hmm. could see this happening, and that this was a good thing happening. And he was just so stubborn. It's like. We're gonna we're gonna make the, this uh, this happen. So, and you know, one of the things that I think gets lost um, in in the, this whole concept of Disney's Animal Kingdom was, for a lot of people, including Rhodey, it was not necessarily based in just ha- again not wanting it to be a traditional zoo. It really, be, it really was based in sort of in their words in this this childlike love of animals, right? And they talked mm-hmm. about this this um, this love of animals that kids have from you know stuffed animals to first pets. And he talks about the three stages of love of animals in the project, right? So a, mm-hmm. a childlike love of animals became the theme park element. So it's that. You know, adolescent desire for experience became the safari part, and then the adults' mm-hmm. love inspired sort of the pavilion-like ideas, and this sort of 
being an animal was sort of a part of the early part of the concept. Right? They want to sort of challenge the guests with having these different types of not only uh, attractions, but more of these individual adventures. Like the animals were there to be admired, but they also wanted to make sure that there was an experience and messaging that was behind it as well. You're at, boy, you're, you're right on the mark. And, and in fact, uh, that uh, uh, phrase you, you used, uh, love of animals, that, that, that was really the underlying um, foundation and, and uh, theme, you know, and, and love for animals now and love for extinct animals because we all love dinosaurs. And uh, I love dinosaurs as a kid. I love dinosaurs today. I never want to meet one in person. I don't want to go to Jurassic Park, but I love dinosaurs. And then uh, the love of uh, fantasy animals, uh, the mythological animals. So, so the love of animals was that uh, underlying theme. And, and as you point out, yes, it was going. The Rody kept saying, "This is not a zoo." And, and in fact, later, you know, in uh, uh, 2002 is when uh, um, uh, Disney did that whole uh, uh, marketing uh, campaign, you know, not a zoo, you know, it may be this, it may be that, but there's one thing it's not, it's not a zoo. And, and they kept uh, doing that uh, to um, what, uh, about 2006, and then they stopped doing that because Around 2006 is when they got closer ties with uh, uh, AZA. So, right. so now that it is kind of a zoo, maybe they're, it is sort of a zoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so now you don't want to disparage. And, and again, Rody never disparaged zoos. You know, he he said zoos, you know, ser- serve a, a a function, and and people love zoos. You know, but we're not that you know you go to a zoo and and there are signs that explain to you you know what you're seeing you know we uh, what we want is we want the guests to you know experience this you know to uh you know and and to experience it in in a uh, a natural uh environment you know and uh uh which made it, you know, even even more difficult. And so, uh, the official announcement uh, came out uh, June twentieth, nineteen ninety five. Uh, this was in the uh, Contemporary Resort, in one of the ballrooms there. Uh, you know, they had all the media there, and um, uh, there were African dancers and drummers. And on stage was the. Uh, uh, elaborate painted model of the tree of life, which a lot of people don't realize was inspired in part by a bonsai tree that the Imagineers had seen at an Epcot flower and garden festival. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, concept paintings. There was a preview video. There was a promotional poster that had uh, dinosaurs, a a dragon and a safari vehicle that was hanging off of a a rickety uh, uh, bridge and Eisner said uh, that this park was going to be based on mankind's enduring love for animals and celebrating all animals that ever were or never existed. And I think that's so. the sort of the 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 were and never existed is really interesting because if you go back and look at 
the progression of how this idea developed. Um, they really wanted it to be, and if you look at some of the early sort of quote unquote, you know, napkin sketches, they always sort of had this hub and spoke design, right? They've got a magic kingdom, mm-hmm. they're gonna be an animal kingdom, they're gonna follow this model that works. And some of the different sections that they had were real animals that you can't see, um, mm-hmm. animals who never existed, and then this large sort of safari for existing wild animals behind which would be a research area. But there were the, the all these sort of sections where you could learn about, you know, animals that currently exist, some that maybe you can't see and then those didn't exist. And then they would have sort of explanations and then reveals of them as well some of them had you know the the animals that you can't see would be like the dinosaurs the animals who never existed would eventually be sort of that idea for that beastly kingdom and that thrill ride area and then that huge safari location which would have been in the back of the park it almost looked more like like bubbles off of a, a center bubble as opposed to the 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 hub and spoke that we're used to seeing in places right. like Magic Kingdom. Well, you know, and and we've talked about uh uh Beastly Kingdom before. And and for those of you who are quarantined at home, uh, uh, please go back and and listen to uh, uh podcasts in the uh WDW radio archives. There's some some great stories, great information. Show and 481. That, we show 481 is when we talked about it. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And and again, uh uh, that was actually uh, the Beastly Kingdom was, was the first thing that Rhodey and the Imagineers worked on because Rhodey said we did that to buy ourselves additional time <laughs> because <laughs> since we're Disney, we know how to do you know dragons and and unicorns and 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 things like this. So we we could we could work on on that, and uh, that would buy us time then to bring in the animal experts and listen to that and, and then uh, expand. And, and again, uh, remember my saying that Eisner wanted um, Animal Kingdom, you know, to uh, uh, knock out Bush Gardens. Well, Bush Gardens had, you know, the animals, but they also had the thrill rides. They had the roller coasters. So in Beastly Kingdom, there was going to be that inverted uh, roller coaster where you went through the uh, uh, Dragon's Castle. And... Um, in uh, 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 Dino Land, uh, there was going to be the uh, excavator, uh, which is uh, would look like a, a series of ore cars used to haul up sand and gravel from the bottom of the pit. You know where they're trying to excavate the dinosaur skeletons, and uh, the backstory there was you know the paleontology students uh, who were working in the area had, had taken this unsafe device. Uh, that had really fallen into disrepair and uh, use it, you know, to transport the dinosaur fossils, but then being college kids, use it, you know, as a, as a, a thrill ride, you know? And, and so you would go through, you know, the dig and, and these ore cars would have zoomed through the inside of a dinosaur skeleton and uh, all of that. But unfortunately, <laughs> Uh, one of the things that they didn't take into account uh, when they were um, uh, uh, doing Animal Kingdom is how expensive <laughs> it is uh, to take care of animals and how expensive it is 
uh, to take care of animals well, you know, and conscientiously. And so, you know, all of this money is now uh, running out, you know, um, uh, for the real animals because uh, you had to have the exhibit area for, for them, but then you also have to have a backstage housing area for them. And um, you have to have uh, uh, training of animals. I, I, I remember uh, uh, one keeper showing me that they had, had trained the hippos that when they blew on a whistle, the hippo would open its mouth so you could examine the teeth, <laughs> literally, because they knew that if they opened the mouth, yes, then they would eventually, you know, uh, get some food. So you have to train that. And my gosh, the, these animals are just chomping down on, on, on the vegetation. And you've got to bring in vegetation, vegetation or else they, they're eating all the stuff in the exhibit area. Well, and I you're going to have shows, to replant all of that. I think what it shows too, Jim, right, is, is the importance for Eisner and I think, you know, even probably the, the greatest driving force in terms of what the mission of the park should be. So if you think, to, let's look, we could talk for a second about some of the concepts that didn't make it into Disney's Animal Kingdom. The Tree of Life was not the original centerpiece that was oh, proposed no, no. for the park. It was going to be this three-tiered, very sort of whimsical, fanciful carousel. Right, and and the three tiers was there was water, there was land, and there was air. So uh, on the water, it's almost like duck boat type things you're in, and then on the land you've got animals, and then in the air you've got like flying insects and birds and things like that that you would be on. Yeah, right. And and I was just like, it's frivolous. Like it, it literally was just too frivolous, and that's why some of the other things got nixed too. Like there was a a, a section where there was going to be almost these interactive attractions where you could, well, like I said earlier, like well, be well, an animal. Well, let's go back to the tree, tree of life. Before the tree of life and even the carousel, at one point, Rhodey pitched the idea of a Noah's Ark yeah. that you'd be entering. You know? But but I'm sorry, I interrupted no, you. No, no, saying, but, but, I, but you're right. I mean, these are all things that are indicative of, at least in Eisner's mind, like a clear mission and vision that he had. And I think that, obviously, when I say Eisner, I mean the entire team. But, right. you know, they were they, he was very laser-focused about what should and should not be um, in this park. Um, you well, know, this and, was, and, you know, what's interesting is he is such a champion of entertainment architecture. Eisner was the one who, who said that architecture would play only a supporting role mm. in, in this park. It, if, if you think to, to Magic Kingdom, if you think to, to Epcot, if you think uh, uh, to the studios, the architecture there is really very defining of, of, of the theme and, uh, and uh, of the experience that you're going through. One of the things that makes Animal Kingdom so different is that it's the landscaping and it's the animals. Yeah. It's not the architecture. You know, you, you don't go through and, and point out one particular, especially when the park opened. You point out a building and go, oh my gosh, that, that building, it, it's so iconic. No, it, it just is meant there to, to support the rest of the story that's being told. 
Right, and, you're, and and the layout and the landscape, it was absolutely critical. I mean, even in terms of where the park was going to be located on property, it was a very intentional choice based on that so that they could design the place the way it needed to be created as opposed to this is where Magic Kingdom is going to go and this is where the attractions will get plugged in. The the landscaping and the layout were the, the most important first piece of the puzzle. Which which also turned out to be a, a disadvantage because I, I think one of the complaints that exist even today is that it's difficult to get to Animal Kingdom. <laughs> so Animal far Kingdom away. is out of the way, you know. Uh, my gosh, you, you want to do Magic Kingdom and then you want to zip over to, to Epcot. My God, you got the uh, the uh, monorail there, you know, it, and even the. Uh, uh, even before they they had these uh, skyliners, you know the uh, uh, the studios was just a, a short hop, you know away. A, a you know you you could even get there by uh, by boat, you know um, uh, from uh, from Epcot, you know. But uh, Animal Kingdom, that's out in the boonies. <laughs> right. Well, it needed to be. I mean, because they they wanted these, you know, these these quote-unquote lands around what was originally Genesis Garden and Safari Village to, you know, really sort of seamlessly sort of coalesce into each other, but they also needed area for, you know, remember everything's surrounded by water. I mean, they needed, to use a Waltism, they needed the, the blessing of size if they were going to create this hub that was going to be surrounded by water. And it also, I think, gave them a little bit more design freedom that they would have had elsewhere because mm-hmm. they, like like you said Paul Comstock said the landscape is as much of the show as anything else as any of the attractions absolutely as and Paul Comstock what a what a terrific uh uh landscaper you know he he trained under uh, Bill Evans and uh uh learned a lot but but I I I think he did as well and sometimes better than than uh, Evans was doing, uh, you know, especially later in his career. Um, yeah, my my gosh, and yeah, it, it, the the variety, and you know, we take all of this stuff for granted, but you know, a, a lot of that landscaping, a lot of that foliage, that's not native to Florida, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, uh, and and so it, it's like, wait a minute. You know, what's this doing growing, you know, uh, in, in central Florida here? You know, but, but it, it, again, creates that whole story, creates, you know, it tells that whole story there. Well, I think um, just to your point, I, I think you're right, because I think that the I think Disney's Animal Kingdom is not just about the animal. You can go into Disney's Animal Kingdom and look at it from a completely different perspective, because from a horticultural perspective, there's six times as many plant species as there are animal species there. I mean, they literally brought thousands of different plant species in from around the world in order to create something that looked and felt authentic to all of these different villages that surrounded, you know, this this central tree of life. Well, you know, I, I think that's one of the things, you know, when, when people talk about uh, the Disney difference, you know, uh, what, what is the difference about going to a Disney theme park than going to Universal or, or going to SeaWorld or going to Knott's Berry Farm or, or all of these things is there's an awful lot of 
thought and planning. It's it's not just attention to detail, but but there's a lot of thought and planning, and there, there's also a sense of moving through a story. And and so when you uh, leave a, a, a Disney park, uh, even if you weren't consciously paying attention, it, it's a much more memorable and satisfying experience, you know, and, and, and you get that from uh, Animal Kingdom as well, too. You, you were talking about uh, Safari Village, which is now called uh, uh, Discovery Island. How many Discovery Islands have there been, <laughs> right? right? The, you know, the the one off there by uh, 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 Fort Wilderness, and uh, and then the, the the one that became Conservation Station. But anyway, uh, Safari Village. That's that's that hub, but but you take a look at it and. There are no really earth tones. It's all these bright, happy colors, and it's not representative of any one uh, particular area. And then all of the decoration is uh, animal-oriented. And, and so there, there, there's, a, there's a mixture there of the uh, Caribbean and the Polynesian and the uh, even uh, Mexican influences there. And... The reason for that, and it looks like no other place that ever existed, the reason it's there is so it can cleanse your palate. So that when you go off to Dino Land, Dino Land, there's, there's scaffolding, there's things falling apart and, and all of that. And then when you come back, you clean your palate before you go off, you know, in, into the, these other uh, uh, areas. But I will tell you, I'm I'm, I'm going to put on my grumpy old man uh, 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 face right now and wave my cane in the air. Uh, when Animal Kingdom uh, uh, first opened, I was out here and uh, I, I took my mom and dad. And my mom and dad at that particular point were having um, some uh, health issues, and so and and so that also caused you know some mobility issues and endurance. And I will tell you that what I did not care for in the planning of Animal Kingdom is even when you parked in handicapped parking, it was a, a death march to try to get to the entrance uh, kiosk. And then once you got in, you couldn't acclimate yourself. You know, it was a huge jungle. And there's a path going one way and a path going another way, and you have no idea which path you should take. Later, you learn that they reconvene you know up up there but you have to hike and it certainly seemed uphill to me but that's by you design right that's all the way up right that's Safari like they, they wanted so, you to get so, lost right so so my folks got to see safari village but that's as safari <laughs> as they got <laughs> they was walking around in circles but see i i like that idea and, and there's been times that i would visit animal kingdom and spend a, a huge amount of time there because I think what sometimes happens now is I, you have to make the dash to the safari, you're rushing to Everest, you're trying to get to Pandora, and you don't sort of just take time wandering those pathways that don't have any signage because if you do, there are so many, I think they're gifts, I think they're surprises. You can take some of the pathways and get these wonderful views of these waterfalls and Discovery River and you forget that you're in a theme park. So I, I always liked 
the idea. Look, I, I agree with you, right? As you walking in, if you look right, down, right, well, and 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 again, I, I I get that concept of this is a sense of discovery, and you're being immersed in in this uh, jungle experience, and you are not the alpha <laughs> in this experience. The animals are, and and so I get that, but but in terms of logistics but, but again i still have that same complaint about uh, epcot which to, to my uh, uh perception is two separate theme parks that were just smooshed together and and there's no really um uh viable transportation to get from one section of the park to the other section of the park you know uh i, I sort uh, of always liked the idea, and if you look at look, if you look down at at the entrance to Disney's Animal Kingdom from Google Earth, you'll mm-hmm. see that the 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 parking lot, the tram stop, it's very gray, it's very bland because I think it it does, and it's supposed to. When uh, it, look, it, it's that portal, right? When you Jim, when you walk through that portal, you're now sort of gone from you know the the concrete jungle of of the parking lot into something that looks and feels so very different. And I sort of like well, well uh, th- that's true. After you pass those uh, uh, the entrance, you you look down, and it's no longer that uh, that concrete. It really does seem like, you know, dirt, and you see things imprinted, you know, in the pathway and all of that. So so you're getting that uh, kinetic, that tactile uh, feel that, you know, you're somewhere else now. And mm-hmm. and again, you can't see, the tree of life is huge, you can't see it, you know. Uh, and so as you come through the path, suddenly it's, it's revealed, and so it, it, it's even more uh, majestic. Um, but it, it, again, the, to my to my point, now that I've become a grumpy old old man, <laughs> I, I, I would prefer Disney balancing story <laughs> with you know convenience. Yeah. So yeah. I and uh, I I know that can happen, but um, you know what you I know, what and, I think and and, and again, uh, Animal Kingdom is, is quite a di- and uh, I, again I think it's very unfair. Um, uh, that people labeled it a, a half-day park, and, and they did that because there weren't that many attractions. Because the, the park they, is the when, attraction. When the park opened. Right, the park but, is supposed to be the attraction. I, I completely agree, agree with you. One of the the joys, one of the, one of the real attractions, is taking that time to see the animals, is taking the time to appreciate the landscape, is taking the time, you know, uh, to sit uh, on a bench. But uh, uh, as I've railed about before, uh, Disney has certainly become a reservation vacation, you know, where you are. You're, you're rushing to this, you're rushing to that, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's so expensive to get into the Animal Kingdom. I've got to ride Expedition Everest 10 times in order to get, you know, full value for, for what I paid to, you know, to get in here. And, and that's not the way you should be feeling. And that's it, not the way you it, Right. This, this is a park that, and I have always said, and I think, and I did a show, I'll have to look it up. I did a show years ago where I make an argument, I think convincingly, this was pre-Pandora, um, that Disney's Animal Kingdom was not a half-day park, but a two-day park. And I mm. sort of outline how and why, because it's a park that I think is meant to be savored. I think you walk in, do not grab a map. 
Do not rush. Okay, maybe you should get there early and go ride Flight of Passage. But when you're done, <laughs> I think you're supposed to wander that part. I think it's a park of discovery, not just, oh, here's a new attraction, here's a new exhibit. You're supposed to just sort of let yourself wander and go. And I, I look, I think... Um, I think Discovery Island and some of the other pathways behind the Tree of Life. Um, Divine used to sort of hide back there sometimes. There's that little sort of hidden pathway. Um, there's a lot of those little locations there that I think people don't necessarily take advantage of going to because it's not on the way to something or it's not on the list of things that they quote unquote need to do that day. I, I, I agree completely. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys who, when I go to the uh, uh, Magic Kingdom, I love just, you know, sitting on Main Street, you know, and, and watching people or, or ta- taking in some of the details or just wandering and seeing some of the details in, in the buildings. And, and the same thing at uh, uh, Disney MGM Studios. One of the things, my, my folks loved that park because they would go in and they would sit on a bench on a Hollywood Boulevard. They would watch streetmosphere, you know, uh, they would just be surrounded by, you know, uh, the wonderful architecture, uh, that's there, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, share a little something to eat, you know, while, while they're sitting there and, and they were perfectly happy with that. And, you know, I, again, I, I think animal kingdom is probably a, um, misunderstood park because uh uh i i don't think disney proper properly prepared its audience as to what to expect so so in some ways it's it's very much like fantasia you know <laughs> which today is considered a classic but when it came out uh people were going what the heck is this <laughs> what's that all about right because it truly is unique in concept and design it truly is not a traditional zoo which is exactly i mean look they got exactly what they wanted there may have been some initial confusion but that's exactly what you know the park is supposed to be and it's funny jim as we were talking so i i will i will confess that one of the the nerdy parts of my disney fandom is logistics right like when i think of when I used to come as a kid, and part of the thing that I was fascinated by was how did they build this? How did they possibly like put this together? When people talk about Disney building the quote-unquote fifth park, I'm like, slow your roll because it's not that easy. Like I think no. about things like infrastructure. Think about the amount of infrastructure. And I don't just mean moving millions of cubic yards of dirt, but the actual infrastructure – it's it, look roads and buildings, but they'll even just the land. Well, yeah, all, itself. all of the pipes, all of the wiring, uh, and and again, not not just the buildings, but how are you going to supply those buildings? Well, and, and not even just and how our cast members going to get to those buildings. So and not how, even you know, think about it this way: we walk into Animal Kingdom opening day, nineteen ninety eight, and everything is grown and it's beautiful. But they actually, when they were, again, thinking about the logistics of the the managers and, and the planning directors that have to sort of think about what's the sequence of building that has to take place. Like, they literally were like, you can't bring animals here for at least two years because we need, a, we need two growing seasons on the savannah 
before Animal One can step foot in there, which means you've got to get the utilities in, you know, a year before that and then move the four million cubic yards of dirt. Like, it's just incredible. You know, you well, sort it, of- it, 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 talking about those logistics, it, here's something for, for your listeners. It, I always like to give something, okay, why is this? And, you know, and then tell them that. I, I know sometimes people get frustrated about that. What is the one thing different about the restrooms at Animal Kingdom that is not the same at the other three Walt Disney World Park restrooms. I know, and and and, and <laughs> isn't that isn't isn't that irritating when somebody asks you that and it's like, gosh darn, I I was there and I've I've seen that and I, I can probably picture that and I. You know, I, I rah, 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 rah. well, as my dad always told me, he said, it's okay to look like an idiot for five minutes if you look like a hero for the rest of your life. And so <laughs> we talk about logistics. One of the things that's different at Animal Kingdom, the restrooms have doors. And the reason for that was that in the beginning, in the unlikelihood that some animal escaped, Guests could always go into the restroom and close the door. That's crazy. <laughs> so, so they would be they would be safe. Now, again, that's never happened, but that was something that they had to think of that w- that wouldn't uh, exist. You know, at the Magic Kingdom, you don't have to worry about you know uh, Dumbo jumping off. Uh, you know. Uh, the little uh, whirly gig there thing and and chasing you into the restroom. You know. But but there may be some animal, and and again, it's it's not necessarily a dangerous animal. It just may be an animal that you know, uh, I I I wouldn't want a raccoon running at me, you know. But or I, a I possum love that. Or... But see, I love that, Jim. So because that's one of it's, it's obviously a very subtle, super subconscious differentiator. But look, you were talking about you know going through the oasis slash Discovery Island. You know, we talked about the winding pathways and what it looks like. What else is different about that than any other Disney theme park? So to to use a Jim Corkisism, what's different from that from every other theme park around the world? It's not a Main Street USA, right? There's it's not a right. retail corridor. You're not walking in like you are everywhere else and being given, you know, shops mm-hmm. and shopping. What are you given? You're given sort of this area almost to kind of you know, decompress from the real world that you left behind, right? So you've got flowers and waterfalls and landscaping and all these exotic animals and birds to sort of, you know, help you sort of, again, meander your way through before you get that reveal, It like like of Cinderella Castle, of like Spaceship Earth even, before you get that reveal of, of the Tree of Life. And, and the Tree of Life... How magnificent is that, right? And I, I still haven't been able to to pick out all of the animals uh, on that, you know. And what wonderful craftsmanship, you know, in, involved in all that. And 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 the fact that it's it's uh, it's not a tree; it's an oil rig, <laughs> you know. And 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 they were planning other things in there. There was going to be a uh, a restaurant in there. It was going to be called Roots. 
that, that's what the restaurant was going to be. And and then at one point they were going to do a um, a Lion King uh, uh, a show in there, and and uh, uh, that idea took fire, and they they moved that out to Camp uh, Mini Mickey. You know, so and again, it was Eisner who stepped in and said, hey, you know, Pixar is working on this film right now, (laughs) you know, so, uh, you know, why don't you go talk to, you know, uh, Pixar uh, about this? And again, so, you know, it's tough to be a bug is one of those unique attractions that opened before the film was released, you know. And, uh, you know, just uh, uh, magnificent and and the and the winding through the roots, uh, you know, to get into the theater. Very, very clever. Yeah. You know, and, and just not. But, you know, when the park opened, there was something there around the Tree of Life that they got rid of within one year. It was the first attraction to close at Animal Kingdom. And wait, close. before you say what it is. Yes. Because we, we have talked about another show. Before you say what it is, I think I think in order to be fair, I think we need to do a second part to this. I think okay. The, I think this because I think this deserves, as we sort of transition from the concept and the design and the planning into Let's turn the key and open the gates to to guess. I want right. to. I think we need to give opening day and and what that opening time period even leading up to it looked I, and really I, felt like. I think like. you're you're absolutely right because because uh, when the two of us get together, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, it there's takes as no long as air between as anything. Long, as long for us we, to do we a show as it did so to much, plan Animal Kingdom. We both have so much to share. <laughs> so so I hope the listeners who are listening to this have. have uh, uh, enjoyed that and have have had their aha moment of oh I didn't know that because when you go out and and you share that with your friends and family because you guys are obviously the uh, Disney experts for your friends and family not one of them will ever say did you hear that from Lou or Jim <laughs> you, they they'll say my gosh how how clever you You're are so smart. how knowledgeable you are. <laughs> Well, look, this is always a lot of fun, Jim, and I, and I love the fact that you bring not just such great insights, but so many great stories that, again, we don't get to hear anywhere else. And speaking of great stories, we don't get to hear anywhere else. Look at the transition. That's what you do in your, what do you have, 137 different books now? How many books do you at, have? At, 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 at least. Actually, it, it's only 30. <laughs> and uh, I, in, in fact, I'm working right now at my home. I, I took a break to do this podcast. I'm uh, working on a book called Secret Stories of Extinct Walt Disney World, which will be out this summer. Uh, fingers crossed, you know, because you never know what's going to happen in, in this life. But but it's over three quarters finished, and it, it covers uh, uh, things that were at the uh, all of the Walt Disney World uh, parks and resorts that uh, uh, or. Well, I can't say all because that's a lot of things, but most of the things that were uh, the Disney uh, theme parks and resorts that are that are no longer there, because I think it's important uh, for that to be documented. I, I think it'll bring back memories for some people who, you know, experienced the astuter computer review or uh, uh, 
whatever, or the bobalong boats in the Seven Seas Lagoon, or the Eastern Winds, uh, which uh, uh, Lou Mangiello had done uh, extensive research on. Um, uh, you know, uh, and for those who didn't experience them, I, I think it'll it'll spark some interest and you know do some uh, research. You know, uh, knowledge is power. You know, and, and, look, I, and I think it I, I think it also gives you a greater appreciation. And I think the things that we shared today um, will uh, give people when they get a chance uh, to go back to uh, Disney Animal Kingdom. Uh, maybe a better ap- appreciation of, of what it is that they're seeing and appreciating and seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I will, uh, I'm going to link in the show notes to not one, not two, not three, but all of Jim Corcus's books, which you can find on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle to make it nice and easy for you to read anywhere at any time. And then, uh, uh, especially when you're in quarantine, exactly. and 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 remember, you've got to vote with your wallet. You know, if <laughs> if you buy if you buy a book that encourages me to write another one. <laughs> and look, we have lots more to share about you know pre-opening Animal Kingdom, and then what that first amazing day in uh, April 1998 looked like. Speaking of amazing, Jim Corcus, you are amazing. I appreciate you, your knowledge, and most importantly, your friendship. And I look forward to part two of our uh, discussion on the opening of Disney's Animal Kingdom. And thank you, uh, Lou. Stay well, uh, stay healthy, stay safe. And uh, I hope the same for your family and all of the listeners. Time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes what you see or hear or, yes, even taste in the parks. If you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So on our last show about Disney heroines, there was a lot of conversation about Captain Marvel, both the movie and the character, and actually one of the characters in it is Goose the Cat. And I asked Tim and Marion and you what the original name of Goose the Cat was. Goose the Cat was not called Goose the Cat in the comic book upon which the Captain Marvel movie was made. I first want to thank all of you who entered, got this one correct, and know that Goose the Cat's original name, which I gave you a hint, actually tied to another Disney franchise, and it was Chewy. As in Chewbacca, the Wookiee co-pilot Millennium Falcon Han Solo, while the movie actually takes the character's inspiration and name from Top Gun, right, Anthony Edwards, the Maverick's sidekick, as the inspiration. So back in the comic books, Carol Danvers has a cat named Chewie, which made sense because she spends a lot of time in space and takes the cat with her, but the filmmakers really wanted to pick a name that could better tie the cat to Carol Danvers' past. So because Top Gun was out during the 80s when Carol was a pilot in the Air Force, it was a more specific reference to her past and her likes during that time. So I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and again, last week you were playing for all my digital products, my 102 Ways to Save Money for that Walt Disney World book, 
all seven of my virtual audio walking tours of Magic Kingdom, which right now would probably be a lot of fun to sort of let me virtually take you through the history, details, secrets, and stories of each of the lands and the attractions and the shops and the restaurants in Magic Kingdom, all with the binaural audio sounds behind you. You can find all those, by the way, both on the WW Radio shop at www.radio.com and on iTunes. I'm also going to send you a WW Radio vinyl sticker, a WW Radio Magic Band cover, and a special mystery prize from my collection, which I'm currently in the process of purging. By the way, check out www.radio.com slash eBay for 10 new auctions each week. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, I randomly selected one, and last week's winner is Chris Bowen. So, Chris, congratulations. Thank you for playing. You use the online form, so I have your mailing address. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay. Because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So as we're talking about the genesis of Disney's Animal Kingdom as we lead up to opening day, it got me to thinking about some of the interesting and, dare I say, unique attractions that were present when Disney's Animal Kingdom first opened. Again, this was not only not a zoo, but something that was going to be revolutionary in the theme park industry. And your question this week is to tell me simply, what was the name of the unique, to say the least, yet very short-lived opening day parade in Disney's Animal Kingdom. Now, we'll discuss this more on part two of our Disney's Animal Kingdom history and opening day shows, but for right now, I want to know what's the name of the unique, yet short-lived opening day parade in Disney's Animal Kingdom. You have until Sunday, April 19th at 11.59 p.m. to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, Use the form there. Again, you're going to play for the 102 Ways book, all of the audio tours, the Magic Band cover, the sticker, and I'm going to also give you another mystery prize from my collection, maybe something Animal Kingdom related. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week, now more than ever. I really hope that this show, this community, uh, brings you some of that Disney magic when we really need it most. Speaking of community, to be part of it and the conversation, please go to www.radio.com community. And please don't forget another great way to not only stay connected to the magic, but really be part of the community and conversation and a brand new segment is to join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WW Radio Live. Last week, I introduced a brand new segment, Top 5 Live, where you are part of creating a new Top 5 list, calling in, sharing your thoughts, and also discussing everything that's going on in the Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars world. And last week, I also introduced a new contest where you have a chance to win a mystery box prize package. Again, it's every Wednesday night. 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. And speaking of community, I want to say huge, huge thanks to everyone who is part of the WW Radio Nation family. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your love and your support and your friendship and your help. And I also love being able to say thank you and give back to you each and every week. I want to thank some new members who've joined the hundreds of you who are part of the Nation family, including Joe Jackson, Chris Cole, Matt Shaw, Caleb Joshua Hill, Rich Ranachowski, Amanda Lo Cicero, 
and Denise Watson. If you want to find out how you can help the show, and you'll also get exclusive rewards every month, including monthly scavenger hunts. We have a private Facebook group, custom Magic Band covers, there's logo gear, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, exclusive live video group calls, lots more. You can visit www.radio.com slash support. And please don't forget that while this is completely optional, it's a great way for you to not only help the show, but show your support for WW Radio and that a portion of the proceeds of your contribution do go to our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Just a couple of other quick announcements. It is time once again for The Purge. For years, I have been collecting Disney, Marvel, Star Wars items. They've been stuck in boxes in storage in my garage, and I realize that I have a limited amount of shelf space, and it's been time since we're all quarantined that I've been going through it, and I really want to share it with you, and hopefully it'll reach people who can enjoy and appreciate it. So starting actually last week, I've been putting 10 auction items up on my eBay page at www.radio.com slash eBay. There's everything from cast member materials to documents, books, maps, posters, theme park merchandise, pins, artwork, one-of-a-kind collectibles, and lots more. All of the auctions start at just $1, and there's no reserve on anything. There's new auctions every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Again, go to www.radio.com slash eBay. I have continued to talk literally since day one about you and the community that you have created. Again, please don't forget to go to www.radio.com slash community to be part of the conversation. You can also email me, lou at www.radio.com if you have a question you want me to answer on the show or call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. It's 407-900-WW1. If you have a question, a comment, or just share, let me know how you are bringing some of and getting some of that Disney magic at home when you can't get out to the parks. Or maybe even there's a past episode of WW Radio that you found that you really enjoyed. Call the voicemail, email me, post it in the community. I'd love to hear from you. Obviously, this is where I would talk about our next meet of the month in Walt Disney World, since that it doesn't look like it's going to happen for a while. Last month, we did our very first virtual meet of the month where instead of going to a physical location in Walt Disney World, we gather together in a virtual room. All you need is a webcam, a mic, or even just your phone and a free piece of software, I'm sure you've heard of by now, called Zoom. And our next virtual meet of the month for April is going to be on Sunday, April 26th, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. I'm going to post a link in the events page. Be sure and RSVP, turn on notifications so you do not miss a thing. And to find out about this other events, including our Marvel Day at Sea cruise in January 2021, which will be here before you know it, and we're going to need that more than ever, again, visit www.radio.com slash events. And look, if you know me, right, if you've ever listened to me before, I'm always going to make lemonade, right? I'm always going to make lemonade out of lemons. We're going to do a virtual meet of the month instead of a real meet of the month. Even in terms of what's happening now and that we are forced to self-quarantine, I think there is great opportunity here for you, right, to finally, if you have this idea to start a book, a podcast, video, a product, a business, now you have the blessing of time to be able to do that. I want to try and help you any way that I can take those first or next steps, and there's different ways that I can do it. One, we can get on a one-on-one coaching call. We'll get on a video call and talk about your idea, your business, your challenges, whatever it might be, for an hour. Two, I'm now forming a new weekly mastermind group where we'll meet virtually 
once a week at 7 p.m. on Tuesday nights, limited to just six people. We get together. Everybody has time in the hot seat to talk about their wins, their goals, their challenges, and collectively we work together to help you move the needle and make a positive difference each and every week. My Momentum Weekend Retreat is still currently scheduled for June 12th through the 14th. It is a weekend, just 10 people in a vacation home near Walt Disney World where we really spend an entire weekend focused on you and your business. There are currently only two out of the 10 spots remaining for that. And my Momentum Weekend Retreat, it's our fifth year, is October 17th through the 18th. It is a weekend workshop, one room, 50 people, based on the pillars of inspiration, education, and community. It's unlike other conferences because you're going to learn and execute what you learn right in the room, meet others to work with right away to help you take your business and your brand to the next level. Again, you can find out more about all these by visiting lumangelo.com. And while I know that obviously conferences and expos and and in-house business events have been suspended due to what is going on, I do want to offer a virtual option where I do offer virtual presentations on a wide variety of topics that are customized for your business on community, customer experience, what we can learn from the Disney parks, Walt Disney, social media, podcasting, live video, etc. Again, all these things can be found over at lumangelo.com. Thanks, as always, to Becky Mankin and the entire team over at MouseFanTravel.com, who, while people are not traveling right now, they're doing an amazing job helping those who have had travel plans, had to move things, answer questions, and assist people with making adjustments or even looking to traveling in the future. You can visit them over at MouseFanTravel.com. And even if you don't have current travel plans or even aren't a client of theirs yet, I know that Becky and her team of agents would be happy to help you again over at mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friend, you are my friend now more than ever. Like we might not be together, but I promise you that you are not alone. And if you like the show and maybe the show is bringing you a little bit of magic and happiness now, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share a link to this or maybe go back and find one of your favorite episodes. Share that link with your friends over on Facebook. And if you can, take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show over on iTunes. So, so very, very helpful. I want to just quickly thank a few reviewers, including including Owens Pac-Man, who says five stars. I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the few months, and none has caught me like WWE Radio. Likeable host, great detailed content presented in a superb fashion. There's no fluff, just an enjoyable listen with great info and facts that's not full of advertisements. Love it. JTK618 says the best Disney podcast. Once I was introduced to it, I couldn't stop listening. Lou does a fantastic job of bringing the Disney magic wherever you are. Really does make you feel like family, because you are. His positive attitude really shows and makes everything sound wonderful. The selection of topics and guests is well-rounded and intriguing every week. Kester Marie says, it's home away from home. This is the best way to get a little bit of Disney when you aren't there. The best home away from home kind of podcast to remind me of how much I love Disney. Lou's such a great host, always entertaining and enthusiastic. Thanks, Lou. PJ Mino says, it's the best Disney podcast out there. The enthusiasm and, and care Lou has is contagious for sure. The only downside is that it's once a week. And Shop Kicker says, of the many... This is the best. I've listened to many Disney podcasts. Lou makes this one the best with positivity and community. And I will leave it at that, Shop Kicker. But remember, you are the ones who create community. I just build the clubhouse. You are the ones populated. So Shop Kicker, PJ, Kester Marie, 
JTK and Owens Pac-Man, thank you so very much. If you want to leave a review for the show, you can just search for WW Radio in the Apple Podcast app, or if you go to www.radio.com slash iTunes, it'll show you exactly how and where to do it. Finally, most importantly, you've heard me talk about this for so long, and yes, I am a positive person, even in times like this when it's so unsettling, so uncertain, and yeah, even scaring, we have to find a way to choose the good, right? To look for and find the good in everything that we do and everything that we encounter. And I think you need to do the same, right? What What's the good that we can pull out of this? Yeah, like maybe it's giving you an opportunity to spend more time with your family that you hadn't had to before. Maybe you're reconnecting with a friend. Yes, it's virtually via a phone call or a text message or Zoom that you haven't talked to in a long time. Maybe you're finally catching up on Tiger King or whatever, you know, show that you wanted to watch. Or maybe you're learning something. You're learning a new language. Maybe you're taking some time to watch TED Talks, learning how to cook, learning how to do something. You can make the best. You can make the most out of this bad situation. And I promise you that when this is all over, hopefully sooner rather than later, Maybe, just maybe, we'll all be a little better individually and collectively, just as a species, as humanity. Uh, Maybe we'll just be better to each other and for each other and with each other. And if there is some way, I don't know how, that I can help you, please reach out. Like I've said this from day one, we are friends, whether we have met yet, virtually otherwise, or not. And you really do have a friend in me. So I hope that you stay safe. I hope this really is your best week ever, and I hope to see you in the Disney parks again soon. So until next time. Hi, Lou and WDW family. It's Elizabeth from Massachusetts. Um, I just finished listening to episode 319 from 2013, um, where you and Tim Foster did a top 10 about places that you bring Walt to see. And I just thought it was such a unique and creative top 10, and I really liked hearing all of your responses the two of you had. Um, And I think it would be so cool and so special to bring Walt to each and all of the places that you both mentioned. So thanks for doing that, as always. And I'm very excited to listen to your new episode that was just released recently about the Runaway Railway um, and all the good stuff that is coming up in Disney World. Um, Hope you're all doing well and have a magical day. Bye, guys. Hey, Lou, this is Beth from Brooklyn, New York, um, and calling after listening to the uh, Disney Female Heroes um, show. I'm saying heroes because we don't say villainesses anymore, so why not say heroes? Um, on both of my socially distanced walks, socially distanced walks today, um, definitely agree with Gamora and Nebula, and um, honestly, I commented in the um, chat thing on Sunday. I wish there was a movie, a film exploring their story because I think that would be fascinating. And then for my personal uh, Disney female hero um, would be Merida. Um, just adore her. Um, you know, A, she doesn't need a man. She flat out rejects it and says, uh, nope. And um, then she she's the one who makes the mess and she has to clean it up. And I love her so much. My new kitty is named after her. Um, and also I was thinking about where you guys were about Captain Marvel and how it sort of felt rushed or not developed or something. Part of me wonders if it would have been different if, um, like, the director had just been 
the female director and not co-directing, if that would have made any difference. Um, I know that made a big difference with a lot of the choices um, in Wonder Woman, when, which I know is DC, but it still is up there in my heart. Um, and just so, I don't know, maybe having an all the female director and mainly female production team on there helped with that. I don't know. It might have been the same. Who knows? Anyway, um, but I am at least watching Marvel movies now, so hey, that's good. But anyway, hope everybody is staying safe. I am in week two of trying to remote teach special ed kiddos, and it's a challenge, but trying to stay positive, trying to focus on my hopeful Disney trip in July for my birthday. So take care, everybody. Have a magical day. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flower Town, PA. I hope you can hear me. I'm walking my neighborhood. Um, it's April 2nd, uh, about 8 o'clock at night, and I'm listening to the latest podcast. And I have some heroines of my own that you guys didn't even mention. And one of them is a mother-daughter combo. And I'm talking about Queen Eleanor and Merida from Brave. They saved each other. In so many different ways, Queen Eleanor had to fight becoming a bear and overcome that so she didn't lose herself, protect her kingdom, deal with her crazy husband who was off goofing around in the dining hall fighting everybody, keep them in line. Notice when she walks in the room, they all just are quiet and don't say anything because she's in charge. And she throws herself in front of Mordu at the uh towards the end to save Merida. And then on the flip side, Merida saves her mother. And goes on this huge journey to try and fix everything that she screwed up and then ends up facing her mother as a bear and tries to protect her anyway. I think that mother I'm sorry, the wind's blowing. I think that mother daughter combo was awesome as far as heroines go. My other one that I can't believe you guys didn't even mention, one of my favorite, favorite, favorites of all time to this day is Mulan. She leaves her family, knows that if she's found out she's dead, to protect her father and try to bring honor to her family, saves China fights the Huns. She goes into a camp with a bunch of men. She doesn't know what she's doing, but she faked it until she made it. She is amazing. One of my all-time favorite, favorite princesses, if you could call her a princess. Anyway, those are three of mine that I can't believe you guys didn't mention. I'm screaming in my neighborhood right now. Thank God everybody went inside. Distance walking. Anyway, everybody have a wonderful week. I know it's been really difficult times. Focus on the good, right? Family time, slowing down a little bit. Try not to worry about all the small stuff. We're all in the same boat. Everything's going to be fine. Have a great week. I'll see you guys. Make somebody smile. Bye. Hello, it's Darlene Yankee, formerly of West Seneca, New York, and I'm calling in with our countdown for the Momentum Weekend. If you want to get in, Lou still has a couple spots, or it's actually a week. Um, so contact him to get into that. It's in June, so we're only a couple months away. 
Then we got the Marble Day at Sea also coming up next January. Um, happy Easter to all and Passover to everyone. And please stay safe, healthy, and in. Um, it's the best form of keeping this um, virus to go away so we can get back to our normal lives and back to seeing each other in the parks and in person. Um, thank you so much for all you do, Lou. Love you guys and everybody and hugs and have a great safe holiday. And Zoom FaceTime is our new best friend.